You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Since early December, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been learning over the last few weeks specifically about how Jesus was baptized, then filled with the Holy Spirit, and then tested in the desert for 40 days, at which point he's finally ready and prepared to begin his ministry on earth, which leads up to his, his cross, the death and resurrection. Um, and Luke 4, 14 to 15, just gives us a, a really quick summary re- report of, of the beginning of his ministry when it says, I'm just going to read it. Uh, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So while Luke doesn't go into like huge detail, obviously, about what happens at this time, we can actually go to a different gospel, the gospel of John, and, and we can read about how Jesus goes into the regions of Galilee and Samaria, and he starts proclaiming the good news of his salvation and the kingdom of God, and that he, and that he also performs a few miracles as well. Most notably, in Capernaum, where he heals the deathly ill son of a very important official. So, in Capernaum, he heals the deathly ill son of a very important official. Um, Remember that for later. So, not surprisingly, through his teaching and through his miracles, he, he becomes somewhat of the talk of the towns, There's a level of anticipation, a rumbling of rumors about him, excitement, maybe a little bit of skepticism in the air about the reports of this Jesus guy, this new rabbi who's preaching and who is even performing miracles in the name of God. And so it's at this point, probably a week or two later, when he returns to his hometown. Jesus comes home to his hometown where he grew up, to his family and friends and colleagues and neighbors and fellow synagogue members and former classmates, many who would have known him well or who at least know his parents, right? But yet it's actually in this very place among those who know him in his own church where he's rejected for the first time. So, Let's figure out why and, and what we can learn from this and from Jesus as we turn now to Luke 4, 16 to 30. Luke 4, 16 to 30. Still not, not working, eh? You might have to un- unplug it underneath the computer there, the whole projector. All right, Luke 4, 16 to 30. Follow along in your your Bible apps or your Bible if you have it. And it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mists, he went away. I just heard Nora go, what? Exactly. But um, imagine, imagine this scenario. Imagine the scenario. Say, say I read John 3.16 aloud. I'll do it right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then say I proceed to tell you that this son is me. What? I, I tell you, right? Say, say I tell you that I am God's one and only son, the Messiah who has come to save you and the whole world from sin and death. What would you say to that? What? Right? Who here would believe me? Nobody. How come? Because you know me. Right? You know me. You'd say, no, I know you. You're just Greg. Some call Gregory. My wife calls me PG. That's my nickname. In fact... I've known you, you'd say, I've known you for years. I, I even know your parents, right? So you can't be the Messiah. And okay, pastor, sure, we'll accept that. But, but there's no possible way you could be the son of God. And, and, and I'm sure you'd also say that if, if I kept on going like this and trying to tell people that if they don't believe in me, they won't be saved, that denying me is their ticket to judgment, that, 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 then you'd probably vote for me to lose my job at the upcoming AGM, right? And then you'd, you'd argue that I'm a crazy dude who needs psychological help. Fair enough. And you'd be right. There's no way that I could be the Messiah. And if I start claiming I am, you should fire me. But here's the thing. Jesus is the Messiah. Yet, it's that same sort of thinking or reasoning among those in his hometown. It's their familiarity with him, which causes them to miss his true nature and even deny it. In the Gospel of Mark, it says his own family 
thinks he's gone mad. So in this passage, we, we read that at first they were completely in, entranced and, and, and in awe with him as this up-and-coming rabbi, this new celebrity pastor and teacher, right, who's been making waves throughout Galilee. But as soon as Jesus reveals his true nature to them, the first thing that comes out of their mouths is what? Isn't this just Joseph's son? In other words, we, we grew up with Jesus. We, we know him. We know his parents. Therefore, he can't be the Messiah. The, the Messiah is supposed to be this, this, this rock star, right? Bigger than life, a war hero and a king, not, not the son of a regular laborer from our boring hometown who works alongside of a bunch of them at the local quarry. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. That is, when something or someone becomes so familiar, it, start, it starts to become to us commonplace or ordinary in our hearts and minds, where we're no longer able to see that thing or, or person as a blessing or, or even for who or what they truly are. And, and in some cases, we can, we can actually start to become bored and then start to become critical, especially if they start to become annoying, disagreeable, or inconvenient to us. And so it's no surprise when Jesus bluntly states from verse 24, and he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And throughout scripture, you can read this pattern over and over. We see that local prophets are often dismissed as being crazy or annoyingly inconvenient. But sometimes when those prophets are sent to a different country and they say, repent and believe in the name of God, that whole country repents and believes in the name of God. Yet in their hometown, repent and believe in the name of God. They're like, get out of here, right? And sometimes they kill them. So this is what Jesus is referring to. And so again, it seems like because they've known Jesus for so long, in their minds, he can't be anything but the son of Joseph, This is what familiarity does to us. Again, it makes us forget or blind to how significant or important something or someone in our life is. It can make us bored or malcontent. It can make us critical and thankless. And it can make us view something amazing as if it's just commonplace and nothing special. It can make the fantastical mundane. And we can also find this negative symptom of familiarity in other things. We can see it rearing its ugly head in our relationships, right? our friendships, and our marriages, in our churches, our family, or you know, even in the way we view local musicians or artists. Right? Local musicians go on tour and their 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 shows are crowded and then they come home to their hometown and no one shows up to their show. Right? Local artists and musicians, you know what I'm talking about. We do this with our jobs. We forget how incredibly blessed we are to have a job. We start becoming critical and bored of it. Even our dream jobs, we do that, right? We do that with our pastors. We do that with our lives in general and even towards our own city. Like in Lethbridge, when when someone from our town visits and they they go through a, a walk in the coolies and they're like, this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. 
And we're like, really? I guess I'd gotten so used to it, I forgot how lucky we are to live here. And this is especially the case for a hometown prophet, because not only is familiarity an issue here, but Jesus is also making an inconvenient statement about himself and, and even about them, which, which becomes difficult for them to acknowledge or believe. So basically at this point, though, it seems like they, wanna, they, they want him to either stay in his lane as the carpenter's son or else get out of the way that is to be thrown down a cliff. But let's back up a bit. What was, what was Jesus actually claiming here that made his own friends and acquaintances so angry and filled with wrath that they'd want to do this to him? Let's go back to Luke 4, 16 to 20. Luke 4, 16 to 20. And it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So everything's normal so far. Everything's like it's been for the last 30 years. And then the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Okay, well, it starts out well, right? Seems like they've heard about this Jesus, right? Making a name for himself as this rabbi. And so they select him to do the reading in their local synagogue. And what does he read from the scroll he's given? He decides to read part of one of the the five servant passages in Isaiah. And this one's from Isaiah 61 a portion of scripture that most of them probably would have understood as being about the coming and promised Messiah. So he reads it, rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and goes back and sits down, as is custom to do in a synagogue. Right? In, in synagogues in those days, you'd, you'd read the scroll, you'd actually be in the middle of the room, and everyone would be facing you, facing the center of the room. You'd, you'd read the scroll, at the scroll of tables. And then before you would, you would interpret it or expound upon it, you would actually sit back down in your seat among the crowd. So it's not like today where you guys are all looking at me on the stage. Though some modern synagogues haven't, have started to do that. But anyways. So when he goes and sits down, I'm assuming that he would have sat down next to his siblings and, and his parents, like he would have done each and every Sabbath for the last 30 years. Though this would actually be the last time he'd do so. This is the last time he's in Nazareth, as, as far as we know. And in the awe and silence in that moment, as, as all the eyes in the room waited in anticipation for him to speak, He tells them something none of them expected or initially understood. He says to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
So at first, right, they're, they're digging what he's laying down. They're, they're amazed at, his, at, his, at this claim. They're whispering, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you hear what he just said? But that reaction is short-lived because they begin to realize that what Jesus is saying is quite radical and incredible. Because what he's actually saying here is that he himself is the fulfillment of this prophecy. That this is why he's come. That he's the Messiah who's come in the power of God to bring sight to the blind to set the captives free and bring good news to the poor, that he himself was sent by God in the power of the Holy Spirit to usher in the year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. For those who who don't know what the year of Jubilee is, it's not the year that Jubilee over here was born, but we are still happy that you were born. But the year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor uh, was a year that came about every 50 years, according to God's law. Every 50 years. And, and this would follow on the heels of the last of seven consecutive sabbatical years. So every seven years, there was, a, there was a yearly Sabbath. And then after seven of those yearly Sabbaths, so seven times seven equals 49, right? The next year would be a year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And this year of Jubilee's basic purpose was to offer a full restart for all of God's people. It was basically the the ultimate Sabbath restoration for God's people. So this would be a time when all debts would be forgiven, when fields and land were returned to their original owners. You know, maybe over the last 50 years, they had to sell it to pay off something or whatever. So land was returned to the original owners. It was a time where where people were reconciled with their families, when indentured servants would be set free, and when farmland was to remain untouched and fallow so that God could provide what they needed. So you weren't allowed to do any farming because God was going to provide. In other words, the year of Jubilee was a year of liberty reconciliation, restitution, and rest, all in the provision and trust and mercy of God. Ultimately, it was a year in which everything was forgiven and given to them, not by their own work or efforts, but only by the mercy and love of God alone. So we're following? This is the year of Jubilee. And this Jesus says, is what he's come to usher in and completely fulfill. Though not in the political or economic sense, as in years past, but rather in a deeper, more spiritual and eternal sense. Jesus is telling those who are gathered in the synagogue that day something incredible and profound, that he came to give us this spiritual restart and that he alone would do everything necessary to fulfill it for us on our behalf. 
He came to set us free from our bondage and slavery to the law, to pay off and forgive our sin debt completely for us, to reconcile us back to God as his children, to give us back our inheritance as citizens in the kingdom of God, to set us free from all that held us captive in this world so that we can rest in the grace and mercy and provision of God alone. And so, when Jesus says he's bringing good news to the poor, he's not necessarily meaning the financially poor, though they're the ones who are usually most likely to come to him, but rather, and, and as we'll learn more throughout this series, Jesus is talking about bringing good news to the poor in spirit. Those who are impoverished in their sin and who acknowledge their need for mercy and grace. And when he's talking about bringing sight to the blind, he's promising to bring, bring the truth of his word of salvation to those lost in the darkness. So this good news is the gospel of our salvation. Though, as we'll also learn, the spiritual reality of what Jesus came to bring will still be made manifest in the physical as well, right? We'll see Jesus literally provide for the poor, We'll see him setting people free who were possessed and held captive by demons or disease. And, and we'll see him actually bringing literal sight to the blind during his ministry, right? But ultimately, these miracles were, were always meant to point to a deeper reality of what Jesus had come to accomplish in our hearts and souls and in the world for eternity. As Tabiti Aniabwile writes, Isaiah 61 certainly has in mind this spiritual salvation meaning. This salvation anticipates a time when all people's spiritual brokenness, spiritual poverty, spiritual imprisonment, spiritual blindness, and spiritual oppression because of sin will be restored and reversed by God's favor or grace through preaching. But this is all too much for his listeners to believe or swallow. Again, they, they like him as the rabbi. But as the Messiah, that's too much for them. I think we do that in our world too. We, we like Jesus as the rabbi, as a good moral teacher that we can learn from in our life. But as Lord, as Messiah... So upon further reflection after their initial moment of, of excitement, that sense of familiarity, a sense of familiarity sets in and doubt follows, doubt creeps in. They remember that they know this guy. So how could he say this about himself? Besides, he's never done miraculous stuff like this in all the years they've known him. So again, someone blurts out, but isn't this just the son of Joseph? And Jesus finishes their thought. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's in their hearts. And so he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this proverb, which says, physician, heal yourself. In other words, yeah, right. I'll believe. I'll believe it when I see it. Prove to us you're more than who we know you to be. Prove to us you're more than just a carpenter's son. Prove it. So it seems like before 
they'll even begin to think about believing what he says. They first want to see him do some magic tricks, right? Maybe to perform some of those miracles that he just read in the passage in Isaiah. Maybe, maybe make a blind man have sight or, or something like that. Or, or even that healing that they'd all heard about, that, that he did in Capernaum when he healed that official son. Maybe do something like that. And to this, Jesus basically says, even if I did what you want, even if I did in front of you what I did in Capernaum, the truth is you still wouldn't believe or place your faith in me. That's basically what he's saying. As Daryl Bach writes, show me is their basic response to his claim. Yet after the evidence is produced, there will still be doubt. Miracles, as powerful a testimony as they are to Jesus, in the end, never convince one who does not want to come to God. People must be willing to hear the word of God and receive it before they will see anything as God's work. Remember, Jesus told them that the prophecy was fulfilled in their hearing, right? Not in their seeing, in their hearing. As the word says, by hearing the gospel, we're saved. Or as it says, by faith in Christ, not by sight. You also notice that, that in most cases during Jesus' ministry, that faith comes before each and every miracle, not after. The miracle doesn't create faith. Rather, faith precedes the miracle. By faith, you have been healed, is what Jesus often says. Besides, it's, it's faith in him, not the miracle or the healing or the blessing. It's faith in him, which is the most important thing in the long run. That's what he's concerned with. But tragically, they just can't get there. They can't get past their familiarity with Jesus. And no doubt they're also offended that this, this nobody, this carpenter's son, just had the, the gall to basically tell them that they're shallow and lacking in faith. And so they reject him, and in doing so, they actually reject the, their chance at experiencing the mercy of God in this spiritual jubilee, which Jesus is revealing to them in that moment. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus goes on to remind them that as history shows, a prophet is never welcome in his hometown. But this isn't only a knock at those listening to him in that moment. This, this statement that Jesus makes actually prophetically speaks to the larger narrative of what's about to take place throughout Jesus' ministry and even after it, which is that many of God's people, not all of them, but many of God's people, the Israelites, the ones in whom should be the first in line to accept and receive him as their own, as their Messiah, as the cornerstone, will actually be among the first in line to reject him. And this is why Jesus reminds his listeners of two scenarios from Scripture when God's mercy actually extends beyond his people during times when their rejection and idolatry against him were at an all-time high. First, he speaks of the fact that at the time of the prophet Elijah, while there were many widows in Israel during this, this big famine and drought, it was actually only Zarephath, a poor woman from Sidon, who by faith 
receive nourishment from God. And again, that, that, that while there were many Israelites who had leprosy during the days of Elisha, it was only a rich man named Naaman from Syria who by faith and humility received healing from that condition. In other words, while some might reject Jesus, even God's people, his mercy cannot be stopped. It'll only extend and move on to to other locales and peoples. In, In the same breath, Jesus is also proclaiming the reality and plan of God, which was always there, that he came not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And he's come not, not, not only to save, he's come not to save those who think they don't need saving, right? But for those that do. Something he'll state later in Luke 5.32 when he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is, this is a reminder that, that the good news, the gospel, while it is good news of great love, also forces those who hear it to, to, to simultaneously admit that they are spiritually poor and blind and captive to sin. That speaks directly against our, our pride and self-righteousness, right? But in order to acknowledge a Savior, it demands that we also need to recognize our need for it. As Paul David Tripp writes, the grace that exposes your sin is the same grace that offers you forgiveness. It does both. So remember, Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, sight to the blind, liberty to the captives, whether Jew or Gentile. But if in your pride or intellect or self-righteousness or because of your birthright, which they all thought they're children of Abraham. This is our birthright. So if you think you're none of those things, if you think you're not poor or blind or captive, you'll be sure to reject the invitation of good news, sight, and freedom from sin every time. You may even become so offended by the suggestion that you need a savior that you'll want to throw the messenger and maybe even the savior himself off of a cliff. Or hang them on a cross. Bottom line, it truly is good news that Jesus gives them here. But first of all, they they just can't accept their own brokenness and need for one. Secondly, I'm sure some of them became offended that Jesus would suggest that Gentiles could take their blessing from God, which they believed to be their own birthright. And finally, they just can't get past their familiarity of Jesus being anything but the carpenter's son. And so they want to throw him off a cliff. But the only miracle they get to see is that Jesus passes through them unharmed. They can't stop his grace and mercy. And so before we close this morning, I, w- I want to highlight two things I think we can take away from this. First of all, let's remember that Jesus came to give you freedom, 
Jesus came to give you freedom. Jesus came to proclaim to the depths of your heart and soul the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. No matter what you've done or, or who you are, no matter how deep or great your sin, no matter how in debt or lost or broken or ashamed you are or what life has thrown your way, Jesus wants to give you rest a rebirth, a reset to be born again and reconciled as a child of God. And his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, his liberty, and his spirit by the power of his victory on the cross and resurrection extends to anyone who believes in his name by faith. So come to him as you are. Come to him as you are. Come to him poor in spirit. Because a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. In fact, he came to rescue your broken and contrite heart specifically and make you rich in him. This is the good news. And secondly, if you're already a believer listening to this, and yet this good news message about salvation that you've been hearing didn't move your heart to become overflowed with a deep and overflowing sense of thanksgiving and passion for the name of Jesus and for what he's done for you. If all of this just feels mundane or repetitive, if you're thinking, yeah, yeah, there's the gospel again, right? I've heard it a bazillion times. Let's get into the, the, the fantastical and exciting stuff. I mean, where are the prophecies and miracles at, right? If, if you can't get excited about Jesus without the hype or, or without chasing after sensationalism, then chances are familiarity with Jesus and with the gospel has set in inside your heart and soul. And that's a huge problem. That's a dangerous place to be, a slippery slope. As believers, we should never become bored of the gospel. In fact, we need to be reminded of it day in and day out. But if you have, that's a sign of a deeper issue in your heart. And maybe that's you today. Maybe, maybe you've been finding yourself just going through the motions at church. Maybe you've found yourself struggling to, to, to be excited about reading scripture or spending time in prayer. Maybe you're feeling spiritually dried up or however you want to say it, right? Maybe, maybe you've been looking elsewhere to try and fill that void chasing after excitement or sensationalism or something. And believe me, I've, I've been in these seasons as well. I've been there too. It's, it's, listen, it's my job. It's my job to, to read and study the Bible and to pray and to preach the gospel, which means there have definitely been times and seasons where familiarity has set in. When, when it all starts to feel commonplace or, or mundane. 
When, when I realize that my faith has been sliding into apathy or intellectualism or something like that, and I forget in my heart of hearts how incredibly amazing it all really is. But I've discovered that it's, it's also in those moments or seasons of, of spiritual dryness or, or dullness where I found that this is actually the, the Spirit's way of speaking to my heart in the desert and reminding me to return to the joy of my salvation, to repent and come back into the reality of the grace and rest which Jesus won for us at the cross, to, to set aside the hype, to set aside the, the pretending, and to come before him just as I am. Not for the sensationalism, not for the miracles, not for what I think he can give me, but just for him and him alone. And in that place of brokenness and humility, I found that Jesus every single time, it might take some time, but I found that Jesus every single time lifts me up and reignites my heart and passion for his name and for the gospel. He brings dry bones to life. He brings blessing and refreshing. He washes away that, that familiarity and complacency and lukewarmness and makes the gospel come alive in my heart and feel new once more. And, and, so, and so if you're in that place this morning, let your prayer, as, as we approach the Lord's table, echo that of David's from Psalm 51:12, when he cries out, in desperation, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let that be your prayer this morning. And he will, because this is why he came to usher into your hearts and souls the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for the love with which you've loved us, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the year of Jubilee for us, to accomplish everything on our behalf so that we can be set free, so that we can walk in the light and in the truth of your name so that we can, we can receive the inheritance of your kingdom as heirs, as children, and, the citizen, and as citizens of the kingdom of God, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for the cross. Jesus, for your death and resurrection, that you conquered sin on our behalf. And Lord, as, as we hear that right now, I pray that we would never become bored of that message that we would never become bored or complacent with this good news, Lord God, but that each and every time that we hear it, we would, we would become overflowing with joy and thankfulness for your name and your name alone, Lord God, and that, that it would overflow out of us, that we, would, that we would desire to even tell people about it and proclaim it to the world, Lord God. Lord, I pray that we would not become so familiar with, with church or even with our relationships with one another, 
that we would not become complacent or so familiar with you, Lord God, that it just becomes all mundane, that we just start going through the motions. And I pray that for those here this morning that that have been doing that, Lord God, that, that you would bring restoration to their hearts, that you would restore the joy of their salvation, that you would uphold them in the power of your Holy Spirit, which you've gifted to each and every one of us who believe in your name by faith. Lord, as we come before your table right now, Lord, I, I pray that, that this wouldn't be just something that we just do every week, Lord God. But that this would be a moment, a time, that we, as we remember your death, as we proclaim your death and what it accomplished for us, Lord God, that, you would, that is, this would be a time of refreshing for each and every individual, Lord God, but also as the body of Christ, as the church. Lord, as we receive, restore to us the joy of your salvation. We pray this in your mighty and holy name. Amen.